right, everybody. I hope uh, I hope you all had a great, great Thanksgiving. I know I did. Um, I'm sure those of you know I'm a rabid Bills fan, as if there's any other kind. And uh, I got to watch them dismantle the Cowboys in the Cowboys' own backyard yesterday, and it was a it was a great, great thing. I enjoyed watching it. It's nice that, uh, and this is the first time that Bills have been on national TV all year. Not even a four o'clock game to this point, so it was nice to kind of come out of the shadows at eight and three and make a statement like that in front of the the whole country. So I, I think Josh Allen served notice. He's much more than people think he is. I think he's going to be a quality, quality quarterback. Um, so that's that was a great day, great, 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 great day. Um, uh, what else? I have something else I wanted to say. I don't know what it was. Oh, a couple things. So I got I got this new microphone because a couple of you had emailed and said it was. I was wearing one of those old i iPhone, you know, the earpieces with the headphone on, and I guess it was scraping on the collar a lot, and it made it distracting to uh, to listen to. So I went out and got this microphone to plug into it. So hopefully that makes a difference. And um, let me know again. This is only works if it's. A, convenient, and B, pleasing to listen to. And if it stops being that, you don't listen to it, then I'm just talking to air. So anything that um, that I can do here to make mm-hmm. it a better experience, I'm uh, eager to do so you guys can get some sort of value from this. Um, we'll absolutely do it. So let's go. Not too many questions, please. It probably won't take too long. So um, one second here. I got one more to add. Okay, so first question. Sweeney seemed pretty adamant that only pre-network sleep shareholders should have takings claim. Any concerns, any past judgments that protect post-network sleep shareholders? She asked one plaintiff attorney convinced her differently, but didn't seem to. So she actually talked to, I think almost all the attorneys spoke on the subject at some point. And um, there was unanimous um, opinion on their parts that... um, the rights, the, the the goods and the bad go with the shares, and that um, whereas even if the taking claim was in October two thousand twelve, if you sold your shares post then or pre then, whoever holds the shares today is the one who will benefit um, from from any decision affecting those shareholders in a positive way. Uh, just like you know, one of them made the point that you know the same thing would be true that if it was a liability case, if the company was being sued for something that happened in December of, of August 2012, uh, you wouldn't then go back and retroactively punish those shareholders, right? So you can't go back retroactively and benefit them today. And there was a another lawyer brought up the point that uh, doing it that way could cause some shareholders to receive double benefits, meaning that if in her court she only awarded damages to shareholders who owned before August 2012, in Lambert's court then honored current shareholders, you could have some shareholders that have held the whole time and would get benefits from both courts, right? So you have some share, one class of shareholders would be getting a double benefit and that's not the way things are supposed to go. So, you know, and again, sometimes these judges are asking um, not because they think the right want to be proven wrong, 
because they're looking for all the arguments on a particular subject. And once she makes her filing, she wants to make it knowing that she's basically uncovered, turned over every rock kind of thing and gone through it. I think she was, you know, she was kind of ambivalent on that at the end of it. What I don't think was just the least bit ambivalent on at all was her going at the government for the net worth sweep, saying that um, in her mind she didn't believe it was the right thing to do, that it was against the statute, that it harmed shareholders, it gave them a takings claim, and that it was the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do, is conserve, protect the assets. So um, I don't think she made any point, I don't think any defendant's attorneys, which is the government, made any points with her at all on that subject. So I think there's very, very little chance that sh- that the motion to dismiss is is thrown out, and that we go to some sort of trial in the Sweeney thing, um, based on her comments and based on things like that. I just don't see it. I don't see, I don't see how we don't. Um, you know, she all but told the government. You know, that's not how things are supposed to operate. You know, that's not what. That's not how we do this. That's, you know, this, that's against the statute of conserving the assets. You're giving them all away. So she. She was basically told the government that, you know, you've lost and we're going to see a trial here. So, and I don't think that, you know, the fact that, you know, Lambert threw it out and it was thrown back in his lap saying, no, you need to go to trial on this. I think that gave Sweeney cover to say, yes, we're going to go to trial too. She's not the only one sticking her neck out, out there sort of thing. So, um, after reading the Trini, the Sweeney transcript and oh, it was a good one. And then, and then also. What's going on in Lambreth and Embank cases? I'm starting to get the sense that the government should settle sooner rather than later. Otherwise, they could face some serious damages monetarily. And also, if they settle sooner, then it won't be as big of an issue come election time for Trump thoughts. So let's go back to the thing. So Lambreth cases is in discovery and was the last week before uh, the government had filed a motion for extension of time to produce discovery materials, and Lambert basically told him to go screw. Um, he was mystified that the government, given its um, deep pockets and the number of people working at Treasury, uh, didn't have the ability to produce documents on time. And he all but told him that. Uh, and then he went on to say that uh, they're, um, they're still wanting to not produce documents, raise more, raises more questions than it answers. Uh, so I think he basically told him... Sounds like what you're doing is pretty sketchy. Give me my documents. Get them to me now. It's enough of this stuff, which is good, which is good, because that's what he should do. Uh, and the on-bank case, that's the Fifth Circuit. Now, that one is going to the Supreme Court. Um, the defendants have requested it, and just today I got my hands on the um, plaintiff's pleading to the, for the Supreme Court. I'll get it up in the next couple of days. Um, and I think that the Supreme Court is going to hear it. Um, you have conflicting um, circuit court decisions. You have the, both plaintiffs requesting it be heard. And you have lower court cases that could also conflict those upper court cases. So you have everything setting up perfect for the Supreme Court to hear it, just settle it once and for all. Um, and that, so the dates on that is December, th- usually 13th to the 15th, the government um, Supreme Court will put out the list of cases it's going to hear in the... Um, over the next term, and that's what we're waiting for. So it should be within the next two, two and a half weeks that we hear what's going to happen, if they're going to hear it or not. And if they hear it, we should know by sometime in June uh, what their decision is. 
Um, then the next part of the question was, I'm starting to get the sense that government should settle sooner rather than later. So as I said last week, and I've, I've heard some people talking about this, and I do tend to agree with it, um, I think the government needs a political cover to be able to settle. They just can't come out and say, we're going to settle with shareholders because the first things that are coming to his mouth are, you know, okay, another handout for billionaires, Perry Capital, Pershing Square, um, John Paulson, Bruce Berkowitz, all these billionaires are going to be made richer now. Uh, Trump's handing off stuff to his buddy. Mnuchin's in bed with these guys the whole time, blah, 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 blah. And they all but said that. Some of the Democrats all but said that in the hearing last week when they were like, you know, they actually asked Mnuchin if he owned shares in it, knowing full well he didn't. He can't own shares in the GSEs. Neither can collaborate. He's a regulator. He can't own shares in them. I mean, they know this. This was all just theater, but they're just setting it up. So I think what needs to happen, and this makes sense, is that the government needs to lose in court before they settle. Then they have the political cover to say, hey, look, we just lost the Supreme Court. There's nothing else we can do. You, you can't appeal the Supreme Court's decision. And that's when they can just throw their hands and say, hey, we have to settle. We have to settle these lawsuits so we can move on. And oh, by the way, this wasn't our fault. This was your buddy Obama's fault. He was in office when this happened. He did this. Tim Geithner, he did this. Right? They, Mnuchin and Calabria can throw their heads away and say, hey, we didn't do this. We inherited this mess. We just lost in court. Now we got to settle. We got to undo what these guys did. So it gives them the perfect political cover to do a settlement that I don't think they have without a loss in court. And I do think they're going to lose in court. I think the tide's turning against them in a pretty steadily basis. And based on other cases I've heard of the Supreme Court, you know, I, I don't think that they're going to get a really warm reception up there, especially the property rights thing and takings clause and things like that. So I, I think they're going to lose. And I think that gives them the, the now, now the timing's perfect, right? Let's say the decision comes out in June. Then you have June, July, August, September, and October to settle with shareholders and take the um, GSEs out of conservatorship under consent decree. And good, no matter what happens in the election, you're good. Right? They're out of conservatorship. They're under consent decree. They just got to do what they got to do. You set up the new thing, but then they'll have the capital levels, all what they're supposed to have. But you'll be good to go. You might be able to raise some money before now and then, between then. So, but I think, you know, they need a loss. Because even just the mention, you know, they, and again, ignore what they say in the media, ignore what they say in front of Congress, because they have to play the political game right now. Calabria has to say, if we need to, we'll put him into receivership. He has to say that. For political reasons, he has to say it. No, he doesn't mean it. There's been not a single thing they've done that indicates they're even considering putting him into receivership. The risk of doing that to the housing market is too great. And to do that nine, ten months before an election, it could be potentially suicidal for him. So there's no way that's going to happen. But he's got to say it. He's got a congressman screaming at him about making billionaires more money, da, da, da. These, these shareholders should be wiped out. Now, what they don't say is the shareholders are retirees. That Paulson and, and all these guys, they run money, but they run money for pension funds. 
for teachers unions, for firefighters unions, for police unions. So you're wiping out those people too in your vengeance to hate anyone who's made success of himself. But that's fine. They don't care anyway. There's not a whole lot of second level thinking going on over there. So, yeah, I think, that, so I think, I don't think much happens between now and then. You know, maybe you get some kind of capital levels or maybe you get further alterations to the preferred stock agreement as we get closer. But the next big date's December 13th to 15th to see if the Supreme Court takes it or not. Um, the podcast on November 22nd was very interesting on trends affecting oil futures prices, future oil prices. Thank you very much. Please give us a view on natural gas trends that will affect natural gas for the next few years. I think natural gas prices will, will be what enable Chesapeake to recover. What are your insights? So natural gas itself is a tough one for me because we have the ability to rapidly produce so much. But the flip side of that is demand for it's about to really take off. So right now I think we get and don't quote me on the numbers, uh, I think we're almost 50%, 40 to 50% of U.S. electricity is generated by natural gas. And that's up from about 20% not too long ago. So there's been tremendous growth. And it's basically overtaken coal, and uh, which was the dominant feedstock for years. You also have the dynamic right now where LNG, right? Other countries, foreign countries want, want LNG from us. Because ours is the cheapest. The problem with that is you have this demand, but you don't have the infrastructure yet to process it and export it. That's coming. That started coming online. You know, Kinder Morgan has Alba Island up. Now they have, uh, I want to say, seven units and two open, something like that. Uh, you know, Chenier Energy has a bunch down in the, the Gulf. This infrastructure is just being built up. And some of the big oil majors are coming to this base now. So in the next four, five, next probably one to four years, you're going to see a huge surge in demand in natural gas. A huge surge. You're going to see a surge just in organic U.S. growth as the, the switch over from coal to natural gas continues. You're going to see a, a surge in just the population growth in GDP growth. Right, more GDP means more um, more businesses doing well, more businesses using burning more natural gas, more business expansion, but the commercial side of it's gonna grow. You're gonna see a huge, huge desire for LNG from the US. But we have the ability to produce so much. And we can easily produce so much more. Chesapeake Energy could produce a lot more, it's just not really profitable to do it right now. They'd rather put that money in oil, it's more profitable. So they're holding, you know, the Marcellus Shell basically flat for production next year. They could produce a hell of a lot more there if they wanted to, but it doesn't make sense. And there's other producers doing the same thing. So I don't know if the price of LNG, of natural gas, not LNG, sorry, the price of natural gas is going to bump materially higher. I think a lot of it depends on weather. But I mean, you know, this year, I don't know where you live, but here in the Northeast, it was not a hot summer at all. And it really hasn't been a cold winter so far. I mean, we're early into it. It's only end of November. But I mean, we just had our first real frost last week. And usually, we usually get that early November. And I didn't think I'd put my AC on until the end of June this year. And I'm usually running it into May. So the weather in the Northeast has been kind of 
whatever, sort of mediocre, which is not good for natural gas either way. You want really hot summers or really cold winters. So that increases the usage of it. We got kind of, so far, kind of neither. And then you added the problem in the Northeast that we can't get it here. They haven't approved pipeline projects in years. They're, turn, they're not letting people in the Berkshires, in a Springfield Mass, add more hookups because they can't get the supply to them. You know what's going on in New York City with Cuomo and those guys? Because they can't get the pipelines. They can't get in there. Boston last year was importing net liquefied natural gas from Russia because there's not enough pipeline capacity to put enough gas in the Northeast to supply the homes. Think about that. 250 miles from the largest natural gas deposit in the, in the U.S., if not the world, and you have to import LNG from Russia to satisfy your natural gas need because of politics. That's the ultimate political lunacy. I could go on for an hour about that. It's just insane to import natural gas from Russia when you sit where you sit in the United States just because you don't want to put a fucking pipeline on the ground. That's just moronic. And honestly, who does it hurt? You know, we pay probably five to six times what you guys pay in the Midwest for natural gas. Why? Because you have pipelines we don't. Who does that hurt? It hurts the poor. It hurts the middle class. It hurts the lower middle class. It's not hurting billionaires and millionaires. They can pay their electric bills. They can pay their gas bills. But when prices spike and prices go through the roof, it's the little guy that gets stuck. And they're all there, oh, we're protecting you, we're protecting you. Bullshit. Again, I'll stop because it's just, it's just, it's politicians and it's just, there's no way to talk about it without literally wanting to go insane. Um, But, so we know that demand for natural gas is going to go. We just know it's going to keep going up. And it's going to start going up in an increasing rate over the next couple of years as these LNG places come online and they're getting fed full and they're really hungry and they're, they're shipping this stuff out. But our ability to produce more is so high that I don't know that prices really edge a lot higher. Although, I mean, it wouldn't take much of a price rise to make a significant difference. So even if they went up 50 cents, that's, that's a huge jump. But again, I saw, and I said this before, I think the big, big winners are going to be maybe not the producers of it or the sellers of it, but the people who move it, the pipeline companies. And all the pipeline is is a toll road. And if you have a toll road in your state, it doesn't matter how expensive the cars are on it, what kind of cars are on it. It just matters that they go through the toll and they pay the toll at the end of the day. And the toll is what it is. You know, you, Kinder Morgan built a Permian pipeline Two billion cubic feet a week, few, two billion cubic feet a day, completely sold out for fifteen years. <laughs> That's great economics, right? It's like you know, it's like putting a highway in your state and say this thing's going to be full every day for the next fifteen years. Here's your money, go collect it at the end. And it's not just them; it's Williams, it's any other pipeline company. These, these, we're desperate for pipelines in the US. We're desperate for pipelines. We need to remove product. We can't get out of the Permian. Because lack of pipelines, we can't get it. Well, we can't get it out economically. I mean, we can't get the gas out at all because you can't ship gas any other way but in a pipeline. So I think the pipeline companies, for years and years, are going to have increasingly positive dynamics, especially in the natural gas side, because demand for that's just going to keep rising, keep rising, and keep rising at 
increasingly higher rates. So how does that help CHK? I think CHK right now is focused more on oil. Margins are better, pricing stronger. And honestly, I think, you know, they're looking to save money and they have X amount for CapEx budget they want to spend. And for them to flip a switch and produce more gas is easy. They need to invest it in oil. So, and I think that's helping them. I think that's a positive for everyone. They have no significant debt maturities in the next couple of years. I think they're going to sell Wild Horse to Jerry Jones's Comstock. That's the Haynes. I'm not sorry, not sell Wild Horse. Sell the Haynesville asset. And I think that'll go a long way. And when that's sold and that closes and they get that cash and they do what they're going to do with it, I think that removes the going concern notice. I think shares react positively from it. That's the way I feel about it. So I don't have a whole lot of, I don't know, I shouldn't have a whole lot of fear in that. I guess my biggest fear would be, you know, another recession or some bizarre sort of trade war with oil. And just, you know, something stupid politically happening. But I think, you know, barring that kind of stuff, I think they're going to be okay. Um, Todd, what are, what indicators do you look at to get a feel for whether single-family home prices are likely to decline, remain the same, or increase? So housing is the ultimate supply-demand. It's, you know, you know, you look at, like, other agricultural products in, you know, this country or this country and who's producing this, who's producing that. And housing in the U.S. is basically supply-demand. So if you look at it, <clears throat> the number of thing I look at is the month of supply of homes. Six months is considered equilibrium. I think right now we're at four. And the beauty of housing is you can do the exact, whether you're looking at nationally or looking at locally, it's the exact same exercise. So you want to buy a house in Detroit. That's no, not pick Detroit. Uh, Boston. You look at the Boston market. What's the supply of homes in the market? If it's under six months, like five and a half, it's kind of equilibrium. If it's down to three, two and a half, it's a seller's market. Prices are going to go up. If it's at seven or eight, it's a, it's a seller's market. Prices are going to be stable, maybe drop a little bit. They're not, or they're not going to go up at all. They're going to be just going to be stuck where they are. It's really that simple. It's the same thing nationally. If you look at it nationally, and that tells you where you are now. But how how do you look at the future? Well, for me, it's basically GDP and employment. The more the economy grows, the more people are working, the more people are going to want to buy houses. You know, if you look back at the crash in 2006, we had like 11 and a half month supply of homes. And home prices were going up 10, 15% a year in some places. That was a bubble, right? You had people, people buying homes in a market that was oversupplied by a factor of two. And they were buying increasingly more homes. Like the story of the stripper and the big short is true. And there were strippers and caddies that owned three homes. I had never seen them. And they were just giving it away and buying it. That's, that's what was going on back then. That, that truly was a bubble. It was insane. You know, you have nothing like that right now. You know, you had people that owned three homes that had no equity, no equity in any of the homes. So prices dropped, they just turned in the keys. All right, take it, fuck it, I don't care, I'm out of here. Homeowner equity right now is at an all-time high in the U.S. Consumer balance sheets are as healthy as they've been in many decades. You know, the funny thing about housing, 
and you keep reading these stories about how housing is so expensive and you know new home buyers have priced out of the market. If you really go back and look at it, adjusted for inflation, the price per square foot of a home in the U.S. really hasn't changed. It really hasn't changed that much. But what's changed is the size of the home. I think it was 1950, the average U.S. home was about 950 to 1,000 square feet. That's all those Cape homes you see, those little row homes you see all over, you know, you go in the older parts of wherever you live. Those cookie-cutter little row homes, or, you know, you know, eight feet in between them and boom, 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 boom. Living room, dining room, kitchen. Three bedrooms upstairs, maybe, maybe two. That, that, was, that, was, that was how people lived in the 50s. You know, now the average price of an uh, average square feet of a home is like 2,700 square feet. That's where your cost differential is. You, you're buying over three times as much, roughly three times as much home for the same number of people. That's why it's so expensive. They don't build starter. When's the last time you saw development go in with those little Cape Cod homes? 1,200, 1,500 square feet. When's the last time you saw that? Never, never. That's why new home buyers are priced out. No one builds a little bit. There's more money in the bigger homes. There's bigger margins. That's what they want to build. And honestly, that's what people want to buy, right? People want to buy that big house to show off. It's the truth. And another thing about the housing market that we don't have now is, you know, it used to be when a developer came in, he went and put in 10, 15 houses, people go by and bought the houses, right? The only thing you did was kind of customize. You want your trim, your countertops, what color cabinets do you want, what kind of banister do you want, you want hardwood floors, carpet, da, da, da. But the basic house is already done. They just came in and finished it off for you. They don't build spec homes anymore. They'll build one or two in a lot in a, in a development so people have, you know, people need to walk through and, you know, a lot of people can't envision things on a computer and can't do spatial relations so they kind of like need to walk in and kind of see the space. So developers put a couple of those up but that's it. And then when you buy your home, you, you put your deposit, then they start working on it. So there's not this spec home vacancy inventory out there anymore. It doesn't exist, which is why the inventory is so low. But that also is a buffer against another downturn. Right? You don't have that ghost inventory out there. It does not exist. And it's not being built. So I think, you know, I think housing prices are going to be strong for years. I'd like to see them not going up 5, 6, 7, 8% a year. Because I think at some point in time, there's going to be negative consequences of that. 1% to 3% a year is, is much, much better, much more stable, and much better for the market long run. Because there is going to be come a time where the boomers, the boomers are starting to, but next probably six, seven years, the boomers are going to really start selling some homes. So there'll be extra inventory coming on the market, more affordable homes, hopefully, for more people to be owners, not renters, for those who want to be. But kind of a long-winded answer to say, it's, it's inventory, it's employment, it's GDP.
It's really that simple for housing. And as long as your inventory is five months or less, you're gonna have upward pricing pressure. If it's over six months, you know, I wouldn't say you're gonna have downward pressure, but you could have muted prices. Maybe prices just kind of stay in one place for a couple of years, or maybe go up one percent instead of five, six percent a year, which is a big difference when you're talking a half million, quarter million dollar asset. That's a lot of change on an annual on, a, on an annual basis. That's a big difference. Um, Black Friday thoughts. Um, I was out a bit today. It's I think this Black Friday is going to be amazing. Um, you know, I was at a Walmart at 3.30 this afternoon and it was packed still. Parking lot was full. Uh, you know, they were open, I think, at 6 a.m. And I talked to a couple people that worked there and they said it's been been full all day. So, you know, it is it is what it is. And interesting, though, I read a, a couple of years ago, I read a story. Someone had came up with an algorithm, for a pricing algorithm. And Black, Black Friday is not the best prices you get, believe it or not. The week before Christmas is the absolute best pricing. Now, the, the problem with that is that your selections are less, right? So if you require a 53-inch Panasonic 4K HD da -da -da -da, Roku television, Black Friday may be the best time to get it. But if you don't care, if you just want a 50-inch TV and you don't care about the brand or a lot of the bells and whistles, you will get the absolute best pricing the week before Christmas. So it's a trade-off. First paying a little more for exactly what you want or getting the absolute best price on whatever you're looking to buy. So um, I thought that was really interesting. I'll, I'll try and find it. I read it a couple years ago. I'm pretty sure I saved it someplace. Uh, but if I can find it, I'll, um, I'll put it up there because it was a really interesting study. Um, it, was, it was good. So, so I think... Um, yeah, that's it. Not too many questions this week. I didn't expect too many with the holiday. Um, I'm surprised I got any, actually. So I'm glad that uh, some of you were able to get some stuff up. I hope everyone had a great, great, great holiday yesterday. I know I did. And I hope um, I hope your weekend's good this weekend. And I hope uh, you're able to complete your Black Friday shopping and save boatloads of money. So um, have a great one, everybody. And um, I will be back next Friday.